Well, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for joining us today. My name is Tony Petrosian. I work on DynamoDB. I have Jeff Weir here with me. He is our product management leader. He's the voice of customers in, in our meetings. And let me tell you, he's never satisfied um, with the experience. He always wants to raise the bar. He's going to help me out throughout the session. We're going to do a couple of demos. Um, but before we get into that, let me just say that I know that we have a lot of customers in this room, and I want to thank you uh, for letting DynamoDB be part of uh, your success. And um, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out uh, how to best um, improve the experience for you, and you're a big part of that. We take a lot of feedback from customers. So most of the stuff that we're going to talk about um, is, is things that customers have asked us to build. We do some innovations here and there on your behalf. Um, so I know that, of course, not all the logos fit here, and not everybody lets us use their logos. But thank you for, uh, for using Dynamo. Um, usually, I like to talk about what customers are using Dynamo for. But we have a lot of customers here at reInvent uh, talking about how they're using Dynamo. And I think it'll be a lot better experience if you actually go listen to the customers and see how they're using Dynamo. So we have GE Aviation, Nike, uh, GumGum, Oath, which is a Verizon company, uh, and of course, Amazon and Amazon.com and their experience of using Dynamo, uh, which is quite extensive. We have a lot, of, a lot of large customers, and Amazon is one of them. And a lot of people don't really know um, how much Amazon depends on DynamoDB. So it's a little bit of an interesting story uh, for us to tell. A lot of services inside AWS use DynamoDB as part of managing their, ser their own services. Uh, and then we always refer to the other side of the Amazon company as Amazon.com because, you know, they're not really inside AWS. And they use a lot of uh, um, services, but DynamoDB is critical to the operation of Amazon.com. Um, so they have sessions, and, and they share their experience of using. We treat them like customers, like anyone else. So it's kind of sometimes fun to listen to them. Uh, the sessions, some of them already happened, but they're recordings, so you can watch them on, on YouTube. Um, before we talk about all the new stuff, uh, just a little bit of a background on DynamoDB. Um, it's a fully managed, non-relational database for any scale. We usually think about the various uh, pillars of DynamoDB, and the fully managed thing is a really important thing for us. So we spent a significant part of our engineering time on that column to ensure security, durability, availability of DynamoDB. We have adaptive capacity. We have maintenance-free uh, global tables. If you want to replicate across regions, DynamoDB streams and time to live. These are all the things that makes it easier for you to build applications and not having to manage the infrastructure. But the <coughs> core value of DynamoDB that we try to deliver is this performance at any scale. And the idea here is that you get consistent performance from DynamoDB regardless of the size of your data. So you might have a table which is 5 terabytes or 50 terabytes or 200 terabytes. But when you do a GET request to DynamoDB, you get your single-digit millisecond response time. 
Um, and that's, a, that's, a, that's the promise that we make, that we will deliver consistent performance regardless of your, the scale of your database. And we have tables in DynamoDB that are two, 300 terabytes in size, have trillions of items in there. And I'm not talking about databases, but a single table. And the customers get their work done because we spend a lot of time ensuring that the data is distributed, partitioned evenly, and uh, that we deliver on that pro uh, promise. We try not to have limits. Of course, you know, every AWS account has some limits. You can raise them if you don't know that. Uh, we have no practical limits for DynamoDB. So your tables can be of any size, and your read and write uh, throughput can be of any size. And if you're not getting what you want because you're hitting your account limit, you call and we'll raise the limits. Um, and of course, it's a flexible data model. It's a NoSQL database. We're not trying to be every database for every workload. We are a key value store. We are an, a NoSQL database. Uh, we offer the flexibility of the NoSQL model. And over the last few years, our customer base has really diversified. Um, we have customers from every industry, automotive, manufacturing, health, finance, banking, um, retail. Um, and as more and more diverse workloads come to Dynamo, uh, they bring their requirements with them. So encryption at rest is something that we recently did. By default, all tables are encrypted. We have fine-grained access control. Uh, we offer an SLA. Uh, we have fully managed backup, restore services. And the interesting thing about any of these is they work at any scale. So imagine you have a database machine, and you're using your database, and you have lots of workload running, and then somebody starts a backup in the middle of the day at your busiest time, and your machine is now busy because it's trying to do backups and serve requests, and nobody likes that. That's why most DBAs run backups at, I don't know, 3 o'clock on Saturday mornings, but not Dynamo. When we run backups, you will never know because we ensure that all of the administrative stuff is happening off the system, and it never impacts your workload. And that's, again, a promise that works at any scale. You have it a gigabyte table or a 100 terabyte table, and the promise stands. Um, so that's kind of uh, the use of Dynamo. And you know, a lot of our customers who are using Dynamo are now building applications that allows them to interact directly with their customers. So you might have thousands of customers, millions of customers, hundreds of millions of customers, and you want to, I don't know, manage profiles. And you need to be able to look up information really fast. Dynamo works really well in those uh, scenarios. Again, you should go and check out the customer stories for Dynamo. Now, I want to spend just a little bit more time on the fully managed thing. Um, so with DynamoDB, there are no instances. There are no servers. There's a table. You create a table, and you use a table. The table and its distribution across hundreds or thousands of nodes is managed for you. Machines failing or whatever happens in a data center you don't care about because we offer an availability SLA. We manage the durability. And so you don't have to do all of the work that is usually associated with the infrastructure. And that frees you to go and work on your own applications. So again, security, derivability, availability. And I will share with you that we have a pretty big team. Um, 
engineers and product managers that work on DynamoDB. We have teams in Palo Alto, in Seattle, and in Dublin, Ireland. And a substantial part of the team is solely focused on this one slide here, ensuring durability, availability, security <coughs> of your data. And then we spend some of our time iterating on features that already exist, making them better, and then we spend some of our time building new features. Um, so with that, um, we're going to do a little demo uh, of some of the new stuff that we've done. I'm going to hand it off to Jeff to take us on. All right. Thanks, Tony. So let me try to set this up a little bit. And I'm going to showcase some of the stuff that was announced yesterday as well as today. And then later, we'll go through some of the stuff um, that we've released over the last 12 months or so. <clears throat> so the first thing I want to go through is something that we released yesterday called our, is, which is our DynamoDB transactional APIs. And to demonstrate this, I have an iPhone emulator. And I have this application that we've created. It's a ride-sharing application. I'm sure all of you have probably used one of the ride-sharing services at some point in time in your life. And in fact, you can play along with this if you want to. It's just HTTPS DynamoDBRide.com. And there's a little quiz at the end that if you take it, you can get some, uh, earn some points, and then you can redeem those points at the DynamoDB booth back in the, um, in the pavilion. <clears throat> so let me set it up a little bit. Uh, parts of this will be showing transactions. Other parts of it are just going to be showing some of the, the natural things. Everything is backed using DynamoDB. So I'm already logged in, and I have a balance. And I'm going to simulate taking a ride. And I can choose from where I'm going to start to where I'm going to go. So I'll just randomly select another location. I'm just going to generate my fare. And then I'm going to request this ride. So the ride is coming. I'm splitting it with someone named Alex. And my driver is Jack. And I'm going to go. And my ride is complete. And my fare is $9.5, Alex is $9.5, and Jack earns $19. Now, there's, there's a couple things that are happening behind the scenes in the DynamoDB table. Um, there's the booking of the ride, like requesting it, and there's also the financial transaction. So as part of that financial transaction, we need to ensure a few things, right? We need to ensure that uh, both the riders actually have sufficient balance for that ride, and we have to make sure that the driver gets paid. We want those all to happen or fail. So it's kind of a traditional transaction uh, scenario. Now, if you wanted to do this in the past, uh, you would have to either hand roll that transaction in the client or use one of the transactional clients that were there. This is all natively available in DynamoDB now. If I click OK, you can see that my balance was actually deducted. Now, what I want to do <coughs> is just over here starts driving. Sorry. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start driving some traffic to that application just to simulate a bunch of people requesting rides and taking those rides. And so you can imagine if I launch this maybe in a small area, I'm only getting a few requests per second because I only have a few people using my service at any given time. But of course, as you expand that to other areas, you go regional, you go uh, national, you go global, the number of requests per second that you might be receiving is going to go up. And so while this is running, you're going to see the uh, number of requests per second go up. I'm going to let this bake for a little while, and we'll talk a little bit more about what's happening with that in a, in a later demo. And I want to switch over to kind of walk you through the code 
that is behind this. Now, up front, kind of a bunch of little boilerplate stuff, uh, you know, just to, defining some variables and some attributes. And so I have to define uh, the riders. So of course, there's myself, there's the other rider who will be randomly selected, and then the driver who's gonna get paid. Of course, we need to uh, create the balance, so the balance for both riders and the driver. And then the values for those fares are kind of randomly generated, um, but we need to hold those because we're gonna be deducting those from the rider's accounts and of course adding it to the driver's balance. Now this is where it gets a little bit more interesting. This is stuff that you wouldn't have been able to do uh, before yesterday. And as I mentioned, we announced it yesterday, made the SDK available, so you can play with any of this stuff uh, from, from this point on. So let me walk you through a little what's what happening here. So I'm creating a transact write item here for the rider, right? And we're doing this by using the rider account. So we just have a table in, in DynamoDB that's storing all of our riders. And when you go, if you, want, if you play with the application, you just go and you create an account, and I think it gives you a balance of either $1,000 or, or $50 that you can, you can play around with. And we're gonna do a write to the table. It's actually gonna be an update for this rider. And there's a couple things that we need to do. First, it's gonna be a conditional write. Uh, we don't want to do it unless the balance of the rider is actually uh, at or above what the fare is. And of course, we have to do this for, for both riders. And then we have a transactional write, write item similar for the driver. So the driver, of course, we don't have to check his balance, but we do need to increment the, that balance. And then what we're going to do down here is we're going to create a transact write item request, which is just an array of those uh, items that we created up here. And then there's a simple transact write items where it writes all those. And so that happens all in a single transaction. Um, if any part of that were failed, then the whole thing fails. And so it's all succeed or, or all fail. And then we can go down and we can do a transactional read. And so after, remember if you look in the, in, when we were in the application, I was able to check that my balance had uh, deducted for that ride. And so we're gonna do a read for each of the riders and the driver, and we're creating items just like we did before. And then down here, we're gonna do a transact get items request, where I take the array of those items, create it here, and then I execute it. And so once again, just like the writes, it's an all or nothing. So, so Jeff, all the setup happens, and then there's just a single call to Dynamo to execute multiple updates. Is that true? That's right. So you're gonna do a write, or you're gonna do a read, and they're gonna all happen at once. And all of those conditionals happens on items. You, you can basically read the condition and include that in the transaction. That's correct. So the, on these conditional writes up here where we're checking the balance, those are all happening all at the same time. Cool. So transactions. It, it, it got announced yesterday uh, by uh, our CTO, or as he likes to call himself, the system administrator for a small bookshop, uh, Warner. Uh, he, he has an attachment with DynamoDB since uh, he was part of the beginning. Um, so let's switch back to the slides and take a look at a little more uh, details on transactions. So it's purpose-built for developers using DynamoDB. Um, 
Again, when we went to build transactions for DynamoDB, we decided that it should follow the principles of DynamoDB, which is it should not violate our performance promise, single digit millisecond requests and so on, scalability. Uh, so we didn't want to put a lot of limits around it. So you can include in the transact write items updates, inserts, and deletes with all of the various conditions to any item in any table within an account in a region. So the scope of the transaction is a region, not a partition, not a set of keys, not a node, not a machine, not a single computer, but any table, any item in, let's say, East US that belongs to an account. Um, and that's a really important thing because we didn't want to say, well, you can do transactions as long as they're all on the same partition or you can do transactions as long as it's part of the same database running on a single node. Um, so that's, that's the transactions. Uh, and as Jeff said, it's a single API call that you make where you batch a bunch of work that you want to do. Uh, you submit it and DynamoDB goes off and executes that transaction and ensures that the transaction is driven to completion and all the updates happen. And if something doesn't happen, if something fails, then the transaction is canceled and we return the reason code. So in the example that Jeff had, if one of the riders doesn't have uh, enough money for the ride, the condition fails and the transaction says, oh, sorry, I can't go forward, I'm going to go back. I'm going to return an error code to you saying your condition check was not true uh, and no changes are made uh, to the data. And then as a developer, you can say, okay, yeah, I need to exclude that writer because they're, they're balanced, they don't have money or give them more money or whatever. Um, so transact write items and transact get items are the two new API calls. So for DynamoDB, transactions is not a conversational thing. Transaction is an API. You have a batch of stuff that you want to do, and you want this batch to succeed or fail as a unit because, I don't know, you're driving some logical amount of work that needs to happen all or nothing. So we have uh, ACID because we have atom atomic operations. We have consistency. We have isolation is serializable. We have durability because all DynamoDB data is triple replicated. Um, we have item potency for <coughs> transactions, which is a really, really cool feature you should try out. If you submit a transaction to DynamoDB to go change a bunch of stuff, and then let's say, I don't know, you submitted this transaction from your laptop, and your laptop died before DynamoDB could give you a, a return code, and now you don't know what happened to this transaction. Did it finish? Did it complete? Was it ro rolled back? What, what happened? Well, with the item potency token, you can go back and check. And, and you'll know what happened to the, to the transaction. So it gives you a, a lot of uh, power as you're building internet scale applications in the cloud, right, where you know, things aren't always perfect. So you can actually plan for failures, code for failures, and ensure that your application always stays in a consistent state, even in the face of failures. Um, transactions are synchronous. Um, they include condition checks, uh, availability, SLA applies to transactions, the performance is predictable, and it scales. What you don't get with transactions is you don't get deadlock, you don't get long-running transactions, because 
Again, we don't have a conversational transaction. It's not like begin transaction, do some stuff. Oh, my phone rings. I'm going to go have lunch, and I forgot to do commit or rollback, and there was an open transaction, and backups couldn't complete because the trunk, you couldn't truncate the log or whatever. None of that happens with Dynamo because you prepare all the changes. You submit it as a unit in an API call, and then DynamoDB drives that to completion. So it's not like unmanaged concurrency. If for whatever reason we can't, there's something going on, some contention, we just return a, a code to you saying, we canceled this transaction. You should try it again because this item uh, was not available or whatever. So we tried to take the, the usual pain and the suffering of the DBA related to managing large transactional systems with backups and logs and whatever out so that you can build the apps without the pain. Um, so for the developers, um, the idea here is like, you say, oh, so is it like relational databases? Well, it turns out transactions have pre-existed relational databases. It's just a good developer uh, set of tools to be able to do an all or nothing batch of work um, we're not turning DynamoDB into an RDBMS. We're just giving you a, a set of developer tools as in the way of transactions so you can have atomicity. Um, and, you know, customers have asked for it. We've had lots of customers who have built their own transactional libraries that are kind of difficult to manage because they're happening outside without the visibility of the internals of the system and where we do have the visibility into the internals of the system so we can manage the transactions better and faster on your behalf. Um, so let me give you just an example. There's a table, and it's a, it's a usual pattern that we see with DynamoDB. Um, you know, in DynamoDB, a table is really a bucket of items, right? So in this table, we have a... Uh, gamer data. Let's say you have a game and you want to keep the profile of a gamer. So we have hammer57 is a gamer, the gamer tag. And then for this particular gamer, we have four different uh, items that we use to keep track of their data. Rank, status, weapon, assets. And we use the sort key to separate out these items. So if you want to get the information on status for uh, hammer57, you run that get operation and you just get that part. Right? So it's highly optimized because you only pay for the reads and writes of that small unit, and you don't have to get the entire item when all you need is the status or when you just want to write the status. If you want to get all the data related to Hammer 57, you just run a query with Hammer 57. You get all four items for Hammer 57. Now, let's say you have the system, and it works great, and you're happy with it, and now, you have added a feature that allows Hammer 57 to use their coins to purchase and improve their health status so they don't die. Um, so you want to be able to update the health property and set it to 100 while simultaneously taking away coins as a unit, a single atomic unit. So you will prepare two updates. One of them says, hey, I want to up the 10 to 100. And then on the other side, if Hammer 57 has enough coins, then I want to deduct the cost of that health improvement from their balance. And so that would be the transaction that you would run. Those are the two items 
two updates that you would put in a transact write item and submit as a single unit of work to DynamoDB and, uh, whoops, and, uh, and get that transaction done. So, so that's kind of the, the use cases for, for transactions. We think that most of our customers will use transactions to update items, multiple items in a table. Some customers will use transaction to update multiple items in multiple tables. Um, but we'll, we'll wait and see what kind of innovative and, in, and genius ways you will use transactions. I'm sure you will have a lot of feedback for us with respect to using transactions, our examples, our documentation. So please uh, give us your feedback so that we can improve this stuff on your behalf. Now, nice thing about transactions in DynamoDB, it'll, it's available as soon as you have the SDK, you can use it worldwide. You don't have to wait for the next version of DynamoDB because there is no such thing. You know, improvements just go in and you just use them. Uh, you can run transactions on your freshly encrypted tables. All right. Um, switching to capacity, talk a little bit about capacity. Um, we can all probably agree that managing database capacity is, is a, a challenging uh, task, but very important one. Uh, no one just says, ah, who cares about the database capacity because everybody cares. And over time, we've always tried to make capacity management for Dynamo easier. But basically, if you over-provision and all your database machines are running at 10% utilization, you're wasting money. If you don't have enough database capacity, you know, your workloads are running slow and things aren't happening. Uh, so being able to match the available capacity to what it is that you need, your consumption is, is a thing that everybody deals with. So in relational databases, you make a bigger machine. Uh, every time you need more. Uh, in a clustered system, you add more nodes. In either case, it's extremely rare for anyone to take away nodes from a database cluster. I rarely hear people saying, yeah, we have this 20-node cluster, and the usage last week was low, so we're going to turn it into a 15-node cluster, and then week after, we'll add more nodes to it. Nobody does that. But with DynamoDB, that is the idea, that it's serverless, there are no machines to manage, and you should be able to dial up and dial down. And it scales, so you should be able to scale out as much as you want, and you should be able to get the consistent performance. So this morning, Andy Jassy announced DynamoDB On Demand. And the idea of DynamoDB On Demand is, first of all, it has no floor. Like, there's no minimum capacity. The minimum is zero. If you don't use it, you don't use it. If you have a terabyte of data sitting in DynamoDB, you pay for the storage of the terabyte, maybe you pay for the backups, but you're not making any read-write requests, then you pay no fees for the read-write requests. It also has no upper limit. So it, it goes wherever you take it. We are not going to govern you because with on-demand, you've asked to not be limited. That's the idea. And we just pay for the requests that you make. So no capacity planning, no provisioning. Uh, pay for only the reads and writes that you do. And you basically eliminate the trade-off of 
will it be available and how much am I paying because you're just paying, you know, coin-operated database. I request, I pay, request, pay. Um, you, when you put this next to our provision model, both models are very valid and are here to stay. We're not replacing one with the other. And the idea here is in, on our provision model, there is a minimum. Maybe you have a workload that for whatever reason, you want that workload to have some minimum amount of capacity always because there's constant requests to that. You want to govern the max consumption because that is the budget for that application. I never want to pay more than whatever. And then you have auto-scaling that basically tries to optimize in between the minimum and the ceiling based on the policies that you set for your auto-scaling. Like if I breach 60% target utilization, raise it, lower it. But the idea here is you have all the knobs to govern your consumption. Um, on the other hand, with on-demand, it has no limit. Maybe you have a business where every request makes you $2, and you never want to be throttled, you never want to be governed because every request means you make money. So you say, you know what, on-demand. Let, let the requests come. Um, so these are the two models. Um, and you want to do a little demo? Sure. <clears throat> so I actually stopped the, the script, which was automatically booking the, the fares, just so you could see how much traffic we were driving to that table. So this is, I think we got the biggest EC2 instance we could get in the region. We just drove as much traffic at it. And it's pretty much been consistently running since I started it at the beginning of the session. And it peaked somewhere in the 36,000 requests per second. And so this is a case where we created the table. We used the on-demand capacity mode. So I don't have to provision it. If I make zero requests, we're not getting charged for it. If you make 36,000 requests a second, you're getting charged for 36,000 requests a second. The nice thing is here, there's no reactive scaling up. If your application takes off and all of a sudden you have a burst in traffic, DynamoDB takes care of that. So in a, in a lot of ways, the way I like to explain it is DynamoDB in this mode operates a lot like S3. You know, if, you if you're using S3, probably most of you are, you create a bucket, you never worry about the capacity, right? You just start storing objects in that bucket and you start making requests against it. And so DynamoDB does to the database world what S3 did for object storage. And the way that you set it up is actually pretty easy. So let me switch over to the management console. And I'm, there may be some people who haven't used DynamoDB before, so I'll just show you coming from the beginning. I log in. There's my tables. I actually have, you can see now there's a set of tables here. Some of them are provisioned with capacity. Some of them have this new on-demand. So I can go into rides. And when you go to the capacity mode, you have your choice. So you can still continue to use provisioned. Um, and if you, have, if you have a workload which is pretty consistent or the, ran, the, you, you, it's pr the gradual increase and decrease in traffic to your application, or if you have predictable uh, traffic where you know you're going to have a burst at certain times of the day, you might want to use provision and use auto scaling because there can be some financial savings in doing so. If you truly have a type of workload where 
Uh, it's spiky by nature, it's unpredictable. On-demand allows you to just set it, forget it, and we'll handle all the capacity management for you on, on the back end. So it's really just switching between these two settings on your table. And those are available there when you go and you create a table as well. Anything else you wanted to see? Um, let's, let's hang out here and I, I'll cover, cover a couple of things about what customers are, are, are doing. Um, so if you think about managing capacity, um, there's two or three different concepts that you should know about. One is it's a financial thing because more capacity, more consumption or whatever, you have to pay for. So there's the issues of governing how much you're going to pay. The second part is uh, our ability to give you the capacity that you need when you need it, uh, regardless of the billing and how much you're paying and all of that. And, and, and these two concepts are always present. <clears throat> so when we think about uh, our provision model, we have customers who managed capacity really well because their workloads are in steady state most of the time. And the variation between their lows and their peaks and their peak to average is very tight range. So they like to govern their consumption and their uh, bill within a very defined range. And auto-scaling works really well for that because, again, you know, it, it's managing within a range. And auto-scaling is always a reactive system. We have to wait for you to hit a th particular threshold before we raise the limit. And if your consumption goes skyrocketing and you hit your head against the ceiling, there's going to be some lag time where we're saying, are you sure you want to raise the bill? Are you sure you want to raise the bill? Yeah, it looks like you want to raise, raise the bill. And then we give you more, more capacity. On the other hand, with on-demand, the contract is signed in advance. You're saying, I want to pay for every request I make. So we're not going to sit around and wonder, you think they want to pay more for that request? And the answer is, yeah, it's on-demand. They, that's what they want. And this is why we don't... Uh, wait for you to hit your head against the ceiling. We just let you have as much as you want. Now, practically speaking, you might have a tiny table that you've never used, uh, and all of a sudden you show up and you want to do million reads from this table. <clears throat> so it's going to take us some amount of time to do the work necessary to scale this table. But once we do, once you establish a particular high watermark for a table, that table can always go back to that limit. Now, if you're in on-demand mode, you can bounce back and forth and between whatever high watermark you set and zero all day long. And in the auto-scaling mode, we will do a measured increases along the way between where the minimum is and where your maximum is set. So, so that's kind of um, how this works. Now, we have, a, we have a couple of customers that have really interesting workloads, which are triggered by an event, and they have a very few number of minutes where they have to process data. They don't know when the events are coming, but they usually happen once, twice a week. So it's really hard for them to predict. Uh, and so on-demand works really well because their usage is a zero for most of the week and the month, except maybe 20 minutes every week. 
So on-demand works really well in that model because whenever it, the load comes, we, we take it and then they just pay for it. Anything else to add? Yeah, the only other thing I probably would add to it is you don't have to choose a mode and stick to it. Yeah. So you may be, let's, let's say you're writing a, a game, right? And during that launch you have just tens of thousands of users who go on there and you put it in on demand because you have no way to predict it. But then as people drop off and you start to hit steady state, the amount of use of DynamoDB may get you know, more consistent. You can move between the on-demand and the provision mode as a measure of, of performing cost savings. So if you have a brand new application and you don't really know where it's going to go, you put it in on-demand mode and you let it sit. And after a while, you say, hey, you know, there's a pretty steady state. I can switch to uh, the provision mode and manage my usage within that band, which is comfortable for me. And you can go back and forth. So the, uh, it's really important to realize that DynamoDB on demand isn't some different kind of system. It's the same DynamoDB, same feature, same everything. It's just a matter of how we build and how we govern. All right. Let's go back and take a look at a couple of more slides. Um, so these are some of the things that we've done uh, over the last few months. Um, so going backwards with on-demand and transactions, I think we, we, we spent a lot of time on that. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on talking about adaptive capacity. This is not a feature that shows up in the console. It's not a feature that you program to. This is one of the things which happens underneath the covers. And maybe you went to Jasso's session uh, on Monday and heard about how DynamoDB works under the hood. Uh, if you haven't, you can watch the video. But the work we've done with adaptive capacity is really important. When in the early days of DynamoDB, it's a distributed system. You create a table, you have a partitioning key, and you put data in there, and you use the data, and you make calls. The, the system expected that you picked a good partitioning key, and you distributed your data evenly, and you accessed your data evenly. Well, that was a good way to start for a distributed database for experts that have a PhD in distributed computing. Um, but more and more, we have lots of users who are saying, you know, even with a PhD, no one can figure out how to make every workload beautifully distributed and so evenly, right? You have to be more flexible. So the work we've done with adaptive capacity is making DynamoDB more flexible, more forgiving in the face of workloads that have a skew in access. Like you're hitting certain set of things more frequently than others, right? We don't ever want you to manage heat maps. We want to manage it for you. So if your workload has some skew in it, well, obviously, it's always better to have a nicely distributed data and nicely distributed access pattern. But if it's not, adaptive capacity tries to compensate for that. And the work we've done there is we'll move partitions around to cool things off. We'll take a partition that has a bunch of data co-located that are being hit more often and split them uh, so that we're always trying to deliver the promise of your read-write capacity for the table and aggregate. And this is work that we've done over the last couple of years, and we're continuing to do that. And this work was really, really important for us to do on-demand capacity. Because everybody here says, yeah, on-demand, but how do you make sure that the capacity is there when I show up? Well, 
This is the part of the dynamic capacity management underneath the covers, which has given us the agility to move things around and shove things around and allow you to access things with spiky workloads, with uneven workloads, with skew. Now, there's no silver bullet in this. So this is an area where we'll require continuous improvement. And all of these improvements that we've done in adaptive capacity applies to both on-demand and provisioned as we slowly roll the stuff out. And this is the stuff that you'll never know when it happens, but I hope that your experience is improving with DynamoDB as we make some of these changes. And maybe you will see less errors and less throttling, uh, even if you have a workload which is, let's say, a little lopsided. Um, we introduced an SLA earlier this year. Um, we did point-in-time recovery and encryption at rest. Uh, encryption at rest is now by default on. You create a table, it's encrypted. Um, and on-demand backups and global tables. So you want to just do a little tour? Sure. All right. We want so to let's talk about... Um, Let's talk about uh, point-in-time recovery a little bit. Sure. So if you look at any of your tables, you can go to the Backups tab, and you'll see here that I have uh, point-in-time recovery enabled. And so what point-in-time recovery does, there's, there's, two, there's two modes of doing backups. Let me explain the, the two of them that we have. Uh, the first one here is point-in-time recovery. And this is basically you click a button or call the API on your table, and you enable that. And what it's gonna give you is a 35-day sliding window, and you can, re you can restore your table to a new table at any point in time down to the second during that, that window. So for example, here uh, on this table, we enabled it on November 18th, so that's a fair amount of time. I could go back if I wanted to, restore that, and I could choose a date, can choose an hour, minute, to the second. And what point in time recovery is really good for are those oops moments, right? Somebody inadvertently writes to a production table and now you need to fix that. And so you use point in time recovery to restore the table to that point right where it was, you know the data set was correct. Um, take that second table, pull out the data that you want to, and then apply that to your existing production table and you can fix that. Now the other mechanism that is there is your ability to take an on-demand backup. So an on-demand backup is not time-bound. You're literally taking a snapshot of your table and you can store it for as long as you want to pay for it. So if you have uh, compliance or regula uh, regulatory reasons where you need to take a snapshot of your database and, and archive it, on-demand allows you to do that. And I'm gonna have you I have no idea how many tests have been done on this. So I'm gonna have you all take a quick look, don't blink, because I'm gonna create that backup, and it's done. And that table, I didn't even look and see what the size of the table is. Maybe that's not all that impressive. Uh, the time it takes to do the backup is always the same, regardless yeah, there was a of small the size table. of the table. But if I took a larger table, this one has 35 gigabytes in it, right? I'll go do the same thing. This one will be called Tony. Don't blink. We're done. So that's how fast it is to create a backup, and you can create that as long as you want to pay for it. So obviously for this stuff to work at the scale of Dynamo, 
we're continuously running backups and we're continuously recording changes and we've gotten to a point where when you go click backup, that's a metadata operation for us and then we figure out how to assemble the things that are necessary for that snapshot to exist. And this is the work that we do so not to impact your workload because you want to be able to do the backup whenever without anybody yelling, hey, the application is slow because somebody's doing a backup. Um, so uh, point in time recovery was uh, introduced in March or February. Um, so March it's been in the system, um, and a lot of customers use it. If you're not using it, it's a good insurance policy to have, uh, and we'll continue to improve on, on this feature. Um, and then a little bit about encryption. Yeah, sure. So if you didn't hear earlier this month, uh, we encrypted all customer tables. So when you didn't have to make a single change. If you're already using DynamoDB, all of your tables are encrypted. If you create a new table, it's encrypted by default. Um, if you look at all of my tables here, it might be a little bit hard to, to see, but there's the encryption type and this default. So if you do nothing, you create a new table, it's going to encrypt it using a key that AWS owns and manages. And if I were to look at all of my tables, because I think we all just created them with the default encryption type, um, you don't have an option in there. Uh, you, you don't have an option to have an unencrypted table. But I could also go in and create a table. In my partition key, because I know someone's out there. And then I'm not going to use the default settings. So if I choose the default settings, it's going to use a key that we control um, and manage on your behalf. But if I scroll down there, and of course you can choose your provisioning mode. It's one of the things that we talked about. If I scroll, down there you can choose between two key options currently. So the first one is the default. This is a CMK that AWS owns. Um, and so that's provided to you at no additional cost. So we encrypt your table and you don't have to worry about it. But if you want to have the ability to see uh, how it, those keys are being accessed to access your DynamoDB table, the option you can choose down here is the AWS Managed CMK. So this is a CMK that we manage on your behalf, though it is a key that is in your account. So you're gonna pay for that key, but you're gonna be able to get the, the cloud trail for that, and then you would be responsible for the cloud trail. So those are the two options we have. All right, um, let's go back to the slides here for a second. Um, I wanted to mention that uh, just recently our uh, migration team has enabled uh, migration from Cassandra to Dynamo. So this is a service now that you can use to manage migration of uh, Cassandra clusters to Dynamo. Uh, it's pretty nifty. Uh, you should go check it out if, if you ever think about this kinds of migrations. Um, if you have some customers that have used it and, and with, with good success, and we have a couple of, again, the sessions with GE Aviation, I think they're migrated from Cassandra clusters. So some interesting information there. Um, this is a list of the sessions that um, we have uh, about DynamoDB. So I would, if you're really interested in the transaction stuff, there's a session today, um, I believe it's at seven, uh, uh, Yossi is doing on, on transactions and he will do a bit of a deep dive. Um, if you really want to know how DynamoDB works under the hood, you should check out Jasso's session, um, which is DynamoDB under the hood. 
uh, I really recommend checking out the customer sessions like Nike and, and uh, GumGum. Those are interesting uh, ways of using DynamoDB. Um, the other thing is, I think we, we are continuously updating and, and putting our blogs out on the AWS database blog. And I don't know how many people know about that, but these are some of the interesting blogs that, that are there. Uh, we're really trying to uh, communicate through AWS database blog. And, um, and we also have that DynamoDB uh, Twitter tag uh, where all of the changes and blogs and documentation and new stuff all shows up there. So, we wanted to finish a little early so that we could open up to some questions. Um, so if you have any questions, come on up. Hard questions. You have a if you have a table that's provisioned, uh, uh, can you change it to on-demand? Yes. You can change a table from provision to on-demand back to provision. I think you can change from uh, provisions to on-demand once a day and... <coughs> every 24 hours. Yeah, every 24 hours you can make changes. Um, don't want to lock anybody in into anything they may or may not like. Actually, we think that a lot of customers will be going back and forth depending on what stage their application is in. Yes. Early on, you had a slide that listed four nines for the precondition checks on transactions. So uh, the four nine SLA, yes. Yes. Does that mean that one in 10,000 attempts to withdraw a billion dollars from my bank account will succeed? <laughs> <laughs> no. What it means is, is that transactional APIs are not excluded from our SLA calculations. That the transaction APIs uh, are GA'd and available now, and the, the standard DynamoDB availability SLA, which was launched a few months ago, applies to transactions as well. It's not some beta thing that is excluded from real. So you could use it in for, for real. So just to clarify, it never violates the preconditions? Um, condition checks inside transactions are things that have to do with your application. So if you have a condition check that says, if Tony's uh, balance is a zero, then cancel the transaction. We will cancel that transaction. That's not a failure. That's actually the application operating correctly. Right. I'm saying it will always fail when it should. There's yes, not, oh, absolutely. One in 10,000 chance it won't. No, it, it will always fail. Okay. Zero will always be zero, and two will always be smaller than three. <laughs> yes. Okay. So um, about the capacity, so with traditional capacity or what was available before today, um, <clears throat> if we were using Hive to like bulk dump data out or in, we, had, we could per specify a percentage of the capacity we wanted to use. Is there any ability to rate limit that kind of data transfer with the on-demand capacity? No, with on-demand capacity, it basically says we're not going to govern consumption. If you send us a request, we will honor that request. So you can't rate limit. If you want to rate limit on demand, you'll have to rate limit yourself. Okay, or Only switch send it back us. to being provisioned. Yes. Do it that way. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Uh, hi. Uh, can you please elaborate more about restoring backups and yes. global tables as well as transactions? Yes. 
Um, so when, um, when you do a backup uh, and, and when you restore a backup, the backups themselves are not transactional. So if you have a table that has, uh, I don't know, 100 billion items and you had done a transaction in there and then you restore that 100 billion item table, uh, the, the table will be consistent but not transactional. So if that, that's, that's how it's working right now. Okay, and to be clear, for transactions, are these supported with global tables? No, global tables are eventually consistent, asynchronously replicated across large distances. So by nature, a, an asynchronous replication is not transactional. You can do transactions to the local replica of a table, but by default, transactions are disabled on global tables. If you want to do transactions on a local replica of a global table, you have to ask us to enable that. And then, so we can have this conversation where we say, just know that a global asynchronous replication is not transactional. Okay, thank you. Sure. So we already had transactions in RDS, and now we have them in Dynamo. Yes. When are you going to announce a mixed transaction for both databases? Um, are you asking for coordinated transactions between dissimilar databases? I guess so. Uh, not in 2019. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so when I make a restore or backup, will it consume my read and write capacity? When you restore a table, has, it has nothing to do with your read or write capacity. When the table is completed restoring, it will have some settings which were appropriate as the time of the backup. If you're restoring from an on-demand backup, the, the newly restored table will have the same settings as the table at the time of the backup. If you're restoring from a uh, uh, pitter point in time recovery, then the table will inherit the settings for the, the table that exists. The read-write capacity settings for your production table is unrelated to the restore. We will restore the table as fast as we can do, regardless of what the original table settings are. I have one more question. When yes. I change the settings from on-demand to provision yes. or back and forth, how long it will take an effect? Pardon me? How long it will take an effect to take an effect? It's instantaneous, okay. I believe. Sure. I mean, it doesn't take time to switch billing models. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> yes? Uh, two quick questions. Um, how are you billing for on-demand? And also for transactional, the example you showed was Java. I assume the uh, Python SDK has yes. also been updated? Yes. Okay. So all the, all the languages are supported. In fact, if you go read the transaction blog in database, it uses a Python example. Okay. So how does the billing for on-demand? Ah, so the billing is we count the requests and we charge you for each request. Okay. Uh, the, the DynamoDB pricing page has the pricing for, trans uh, for, for uh, on-demand. Uh, as of now, it's live. You can go check it out. Different rates in different regions, as always. All right. Thank you. Um, by the way, with transactions, since you brought up billing, we do a little more work for transactions. So when you do a transactional put, we actually have to do two writes. So we do a prepare and a commit. So we will, it will cost you two WCUs to do a transactional write. And if you just do a regular put, it will cost you one WCU. 
Same for reads. Again, we do um, a prepare and a commit. So we do more work for transactions. We don't have a separate metering and billing. It's just that we use more of your RCU, WCU tokens. Uh, same for on demand. And, um, but it, we think that it's a lot better than some of the transaction libraries where you know, people are doing somewhere around seven to 12 reads and writes for a transaction. So I think we're, we're a little better. Yes? Uh, is on-demand usable with global tables? Yes. Okay. So you partially answered this, I think, but it sounds like you're doing a two-phase commit, and that means that I should be thinking about how to avoid contention uh, between my, con my transactions. In, in any transactional system, it's always good to figure out how to avoid contention, because contention is... Uh, managed for you by the database. Some databases manage contention better, and some databases manage contention differently. Uh, and so, yes, you should you should try to uh, manage contention, have as little contention as possible. If you're doing a million transactions on a million different items in DynamoDB, there is no contention. If a, if an item is involved in in multiple transactions, one of them is going to get serialized and go forward, and the other ones are going to get canceled, then you'll have to retry, right? So we always go for the serializable. So if you can't serialize it, then we'll let you know, right? And that's when you know you have high contention. But you know. It's not like, oh, I got to go see what's stuck because there's a convoy. Like, there's no notion of queues that continue to increase in size because you have high contention. Um, there's always one that's succeeding and, then, and, and some that are not, and you know the reason. Thank you. Yes. Hi. Uh, recently, we had a scenario where we were updating auto-scaling on one of our tables uh, through a CloudFormation stack update, and it wanted to reset auto-scaling um, and decrease capacity. We then got, um, we received a, an error saying that we reached our maximum number of downscales and that we had to wait an hour. Would switching the um, table over to on-demand capacity um, allow us to update the auto scaling and reset that? Uh, you wouldn't need to, it, when you switch over to on demand, you're no longer using auto scaling. So, yeah. So, in a sense, yes, because you're disabling it and you're paying per request. So, I, I, yes. So, if you switched uh, over and you wouldn't make any more requests, you would no longer be getting billed for those. So, switching over to on demand just to get around the scenario to allow me to reset my auto scaling. I would, I, I would eventually want to be back on that auto-scaling. You could switch back 24 hours later. Well, you should call support on that so that there's a case on that. We but no, there's a maximum yeah. number of downscales. Uh, I know, but yeah. still, if it's an issue with the cloud formation template not matching something, or, or was that because you didn't have a matching template? Uh, uh, we had, we had downscaled um, through the auto-scaling four times within an hour, and oh, I, I guess see. that was a, a limit, um, possibly a soft limit, but we did hit it and we just happened to be updating and fixing the auto-scaling. Um, so we were unable to finish our production deployment at the time. We had to wait an hour before we could yeah. deploy the table and the rest of the services that yeah. depended on the table. I think, I think that's a good piece of feedback for us to improve because sometimes those limits get in the way and you know, we, could, we could probably improve on them. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Yes? Uh, I have a question on global table. Yes. What is the uh, extra latency uh, on top of your network from one region to the other region? Um, that's, a, that's a question that can only be answered by a physicist 
who can predict the distance. And, and so um, I don't want to be flippant about it, but I don't know if you're replicating from uh, Japan to Brazil or... Let's or, say uh, East region to West region. Um, it's, it's in uh, tens of milliseconds as far as the network is concerned. Usually the network distance is in a few milliseconds within the United States, let's say 30 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. And so the latencies and the lags um, uh, for replication has to do with the, the throughput and, and amount of writes that you do. Those are more of an issue than the distance in, uh, in, 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 in within the region. So it's based on, your re, uh, based on your write capacity, right? Yeah, okay. and how much you're writing. But we do, we do manage the lag and we monitor it, and so. Um, it's very if you have a 1K yeah. object. So we're gonna run out of time. Uh, thank you, especially all of you who stuck around. Uh, please do the surveys. Jeff and I will be outside the room so we can continue taking questions, uh, but we're gonna get kicked out of here. So meet us in the back if you wanna continue. <laughs>